Today, we're tackling contact dermatitis, a skin condition that impacts millions each year, but often goes misunderstood. According to the American Academy of Dermatology, contact dermatitis affects over 14.5 million Americans annually. It's more than just an itchy annoyance. It can cause significant distress, missed workdays, and even disrupt livelihoods. To get in-depth knowledge of how this condition is treated, I am so happy to have the opportunity to chat with Dr. Bruce Brode, an esteemed dermatologist who is the co-director of occupational and contact dermatitis at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Brode has a keen focus on inflammatory skin diseases, particularly contact dermatitis, and I hope through this conversation today that we will get a better understanding of the complexity surrounding the skin condition and how it is treated. Dr. Brode, thank you for joining us today. Oh, happy to be here. It's great to uh, be talking about a subject that's uh, near and dear to my heart, very important for patients, and uh, I think one of the most gratifying subspecialties in all of dermatology. So can you start off by sharing with us what contact dermatitis is and how it differs from eczema? Yeah, it's really, contact dermatitis is, we really think of it as exogenous. So it, it's it's caused by uh, exposure to external substances that then result in dermatitis of the skin. I, I think it's always important when we think of contact dermatitis, I think the prototype that, you know, we can all relate to is you know, plant dermatitis, especially living on the East Coast, poison ivy, poison oak, sumac, uh, more in other areas of the country. It's really the same basic allergen. Um, and, you know, a large majority of Americans are sensitized to that. But I think um, it's really important to remember that most contact dermatitis is irritant in nature. Um, and irritants are affect all members of the population. I mean, there's genetic variances in how our skin reacts to irritants, but um, I think it's important to realize that most contact dermatitis is irritant. Um, I mean, we may wanna focus more today on allergic contact dermatitis because, uh, you know, it's a little more exciting to talk mm -hmm. about. And, different allergens, common allergens, emerging allergens, and, you know, where they exert their uh, ill effects on the skin. Yeah, it's, it's actually very funny because I was reading the Andrews chapter on contact dermatitis, and it's very extensive. It goes into extensive detail about every single allergen possible, and it's probably not even the complete list, but, um, it just is, it's amazing how many allergens there are. Um, can you just differentiate briefly the difference between irritant contact dermatitis and allergic contact dermatitis, just so our um, listeners can have a better understanding of that? Yeah, for, for sure. And, and I think many of the strong allergens um, are actually irritant in nature. So it's 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 in a sense, you know, if you want to get into the weeds more, it's sometimes hard to separate the two because oftentimes allergens are irritants. But um, 
allergens or, or haptins, generally they're small molecular weight substances, um, and they elicit um, an immunologic reaction. It's a type four reaction. Um, that's the hallmark of allergic contact dermatitis. Typically it requires an initial sensitization process um, and it's a complex interplay between Langerhans cells and, and T cells um, setting up memory um, within the immune system. And then, and then uh, upon re-exposure, uh, the uh, memory cells trigger uh, an, an inflammatory cascade and the reaction begins again. Irritant dermatitis, um, that tends to be things that um, uh, defeat the skin barrier, um, dissolve lipids, break down uh, the, the uh, stratum corneum, um, and are, are, are cumulative in nature. So, um, you know, typical irritants or soaps, detergent. I, I often remind patients, and I think even dermatologists and dermatology residents, that the, the most common irritant that we often don't think about as an irritant is water. So repeated exposure to water, the wet, dry cycles, causing swelling, shrinkage, swelling, shrinkage cycles of the stratum corneum is actually, I think, the most common and oftentimes under-recognized irritant. So, which is actually, you know, it's an interesting point you bring up because I recently saw a patient who came in, um, I think she was saying that she had like hand dermatitis. She didn't diagnose it as that, but we were giving her very, you know, clear instructions to only really have to wash her hands when absolutely necessary. And, um, I think she had a hard time grasping at that because everyone's like, well, shouldn't I always wash my hands? Um, you know, I want to be hygienic, especially with COVID. Um, but we, we told her like, this problem is not going to get better if you don't stop using as much water as you are on your hands and feet. Um, I, I do want to ask you, you know, we are seeing a rise in allergies. Do you, do you see a link that in terms of, are we seeing an increase in contact dermatitis as well? And do you think there's any relationship to epigenetics here? Uh, you know, I think, I, you know, aller allergy, I think in a broad sense of the word, um, it really needs to be distinguished from specifically allergic contact dermatitis and the, and the allergies that we diagnose through patch testing. And I know, you know, there's, there's, there are many factors that may be giving rise to, to allergies and, you know, folks, you know, wonder about climate change and things of that nature. I think the, I think the critical thing to know to, when you think about allergic contact dermatitis is that it's one probably very much under recognized. And I think there are many reasons for that. And, and I think a lot of it has to do with social determinants and patients. We did a study uh, at Penn and, and found that, you know, certain, certain segments of the population really didn't have access to patch testing the same way as others. So I, I think it's, it's, there's a high burden with contact dermatitis. It's really under-recognized. Um, uh, I think the, the common allergens, there, there are shifts. We see shifts over time as industry responds, as patient awareness goes up. 
Um, I think that's the important thing that it's it's really not a static field and you have to keep up with trends in the literature to really be able to do the best by your patients. And it's very, very common. I mean, the most common allergen that we patched us to nickel, um, you know, there's a high rate of sensitivity in the United States population. It's it's less in, in Europe uh, and other countries where they've limited exposure. Um, but, you know, it's upwards of, you know, there's gender differences to to some degree, but, you know, 10, 15 percent of patients have have nickel sensitivity and, and it's ubiquitous. It's it's everywhere. Would you say there's any um, distinction amongst um, the demographics of who's affected by this? Uh, well, we think one of the ways folks are getting sensitized to nickels through body piercing um, techniques, and there there is a correlation between the actually the number of piercings and the rate of nickel sensitivity in the United States. And then, you know, we have a, a great, uh, you know, diff and diff type of study. If you look at Europe and look at the EU and they restricted the use of nickel, the rates of nickel sensitivity have, have gone down in Europe compared to the United States. So is, would you say there's any specific occupation that you see the highest rate of contact dermatitis? Yes, and you're in it. Healthcare <laughs> worker. <laughs> um, Lucky I me. Think, I, I, so I, I think the health, healthcare workers are a common occupation that I see in my clinic. Um, one, I think because, uh, and, and it really took off during COVID, but it was common before COVID and it's still common after COVID. Why do I see so many healthcare workers, nurses, physicians, especially, you know, folks in surgical fields, people who work in the emergency room? Um, well, one, because they, they're they exposed to, to allergens and they're exposed to irritants, hand-washing, gloves, antibacterials, um, you know, even materials used in the OR, things like acrylates, that's, it's a little less common. And I also think I see a lot of healthcare workers because I work in a large um, healthcare system and the healthcare, you know, medicine is challenging these days, very gratifying. And I, I feel fortunate every day to, to be a dermatologist and to be able to take care of patients. Um, one of the positive aspects of being in healthcare is I think we know how to access the healthcare system better. And I think that accounts for why I see lots of healthcare workers, but also uh, folks in the hairdressing industry um, is common in my clinic, uh, uh, co uh, cosmetologists, nail, nail uh, cosmeticians, really, really very common um, because of the exposure to uh, uh, acrylic monomers in the workplace, um, you know, and a whole variety of other professions as well. And I think it really depends on where you practice. Um, you know, so machinists, but not as common nowadays as, you know, now I've been in practice over 30 years and, you know, the gl globalization and, and has caused shifts. So I don't see as many folks in industry anymore. Um, because a lot of those jobs are are offshore now, but I still see some auto mechanics, uh, folks in construction, um, 
uh, food handlers. So I think many of them end up having irritant dermatitis. It's one of the highest risk occupations um, for irritancy because of their exposure to water. So lots of cleansing, food, raw foods can be irritants as well. Um, so those, those, are, those are really some of the common professions um, that I see. And, 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 you know, we have, I'm fortunate because I'm at a place where we have the ability to drill down and test um, to many of those specific uh, fields. We have the, the allergens to match those professions. So, you know, that brings me to an interesting question. I remember seeing a patient, I think she was Vietnamese or from Thailand, and she worked in a, in a salon, nail salon, and she was dealing with acrylic monomers, and she had a terrible contact dermatitis. You know, these are difficult cases to manage because these jobs are their livelihoods. So... How do you go about that situation? Obviously, the best thing to do is, you know, avoid the offending agent and switch occupations, but that's not always an option. So is, what do you do in that situation? Yeah, it's it's not always an option. I mean, there are alternative nail cosmetic products that don't use acrylic monomers, but they don't look as nice. Um, you know, sometimes that shift is, is, is made. Um, you know, the approach to any occupational uh, contact dermatitis it, it's, is, is similar. You know, first choice is try to substitute to uh, substances that in the workplace that they're not allergic to. That's hard in the nail cosmetic industry because the alternatives aren't as good. Um, but there are other things. I mean, uh, just education, putting in engineering controls, you know, uh, you know, keeping keeping the surfaces uh, clean and 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 uh, uh, eliminating at least lots of you know contamination from acrylics. Um, better ventilation, personal protective equipment. Um, it can be helpful, you know, in terms of uh, face shields. Um, acrylates are pretty efficient at penetrating gloves, but you know, using uh, multi-layered or multi-laminated gloves, you know, can help at least to mitigate it some. I, I would say I that's one of my most challenging occupations. Um, and the, making that diagnosis, I've had to sort of temper my excitement over the years, you know, because the natural inclination of a contact dermatologist when they find a relevant allergen is to celebrate and say, hey, look how smart we are, but I've been humbled appropriately. Um, we learned from our patients over time to realize that's not such good news for somebody whose livelihood depends on that. And now, you know, I get ready with the uh, box of uh, tissues because uh, it often requires serious conversation and job retraining. Um, you know, I, it, it, it's, it, it's hard sometimes to deliver that news. I try to frame it in the way that um, it's better. You know, I, I, I tell my patients, I'm not really here to provide any specific 
you know, expectation, you're not going to, you're not going to disappoint, you know, don't worry if you disappoint, you're not going to be dis disappointing us if we don't find anything or we find certain allergens. I say, we, we just want to be purveyors of the truth. We just want you to know the truth because from that point, we're better off. We can establish a plan. We can take a step back um, and kind of, if it needs some major life restructuring, better to know now than than later and 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 make appropriate plans and you know oftentimes those patients are coming to you after struggling with this for a very long time and you kind of like they finally found the right person to go to um and so for them i'm sure it's also you know partly re a relief to know what after all this time what was causing it because they try different things they think it's something and it's not something and they get misdiagnosed so it's it's like hard to hear but also it's it's almost like a bittersweet message to know what it is but it's also hard to hear especially if their livelihood counts on that yeah um, i think i think framing things you know pay Physicians, um, in the way they communicate and the way they frame things, um, and I don't know, you know, if it should be this way, you know, I think we we ideally want patients to be able to, to be as independent as possible in making those decisions. But the reality is physicians do play an important role and frame things for patients. And there, there's ways to do that. I mean, you know, this is good news, right? They don't need to be on an expensive biologic. Um, that's a whole nother can of worms. Now we have some really, you know, powerful, you know, oral jack inhibitors that might be, effect, you know, that it raises some questions. I mean, we have, we're getting to the point where we have medications that can control allergic contact dermatitis and might potentially allow patients to continue to be exposed to that haptin for better or for worse. But it is it is a good way to frame for patients that, you know, we have a treatment that doesn't involve drugs or medication or or light therapy. It's just a question of putting measures in place to avoid it. Have you found that you're starting to use these jack inhibitors for patients that, you know, that's kind of like their last resort? Um, it's very... Uh, very rarely still, maybe uh, I, I'm still maybe uh, allergic contact dermatitis purist. And, you know, I haven't quite perhaps shifted to a, to a more practical approach. I did have one patient whose livelihood depended on working with certain flowers. Um, uh, and she was hydrangeas that she reacted to and she couldn't completely avoid them and had pretty significant uh dermatitis that did improve on oral jack inhibitor hmm. and was able to uh to use that in combination with minimizing her exposure at work Fascinating. Uh, it's, not, it's still it's still not my first choice i still i'm still uh you know let's eliminate and substitute and educate yeah of course no one wants to put you on a immune modulator if you could simply you know change something without putting on a more extreme course. So I, I am totally with you on that. Um, is a patient with atopic dermatitis more likely to develop a contact dermatitis? Uh, I, I, I don't think so. 
but I think that their allergen profile can be different. And I think there's a role for patch testing in some patients with atopic dermatitis. I think that, um, and some of the literature supports this, that atopics, they, they react a little more frequently to nickel and they also react to some of the less potent allergens. Um, one of my favorite sayings, if you've seen one allergen, you've seen one allergen. Mm -hmm. So atopics will tend to react um, uh, mildly to certain certain allergens, fragrances, uh, sorbitans, esquiolate, emulsifiers, things like that. Um, um, but my expectation in atopics um, who tend to get referred to me when they're more recalcitrant or flaring or they have certain regional accentuations is that we're, we're looking for something to help mitigate their disease um, and set the expectation that this, this may not be um, the cure the way it is for somebody who who's a healthcare worker without an atopic history, who developed hand dermatitis after the ED switched to a new pair of gloves, or somebody without a history of atopy who's now developing rip-roaring dermatitis on their dorsal fingers and face and eyelids um, that gets better when they um, ha have a week away from the nail cosmetic salon, you know, the, those folks, the expectations are, are higher for cure, but th with the atopics, I think it's tends to be more of a, uh, a hybrid and a contributing factor. You know, I, it brought me to an interesting thought. Um, recently, my father is an oculoplastic surgeon and he saw a patient um, who had atropion and it was actually caused by his glaucoma eye drops. And he also had developed a um, contact dermatitis to the uh, preservatives in the um, eye drops, which I think is actually more common than people know, because, you know, he's, he had said that he went to his ophthalmologist and that he has to be on these glaucoma eye drops for his pressure. But um, when we we did a trial to take him off of the eye drops. He started to improve. Um, but I do think it, it can be a challenging area because obviously the pressure is like num dealing with the glaucoma pressure is number one. Um, and it, it's not always the case that you can find a um, similar eye drop to without preservatives in it. So I, I was wondering if you ever deal with that situation. This is actually a very common referral to my patch test clinic. Um, these are and um, these are really very uh, challenging patients. Very and these are important patients to evaluate. I had a patient actually just the other week who uh, is in need of uh, ocular surgery, and that surgery would require uh, post-surgical treatment with ophthalmic topical steroids. Um, the, there was a problem though. This patient had a, a known history and we we proved it through patch testing and validated a topical steroid allergy, um, which is which is really very interesting. So how do you so what do you do? You know, he needs steroids to op optimize the post-surgical care and he's allergic to topical steroids. So um 
This was a patient where, and, and so there really needs to be a lot of coordination with the ophthalmologist. It really helps sometimes to have like a good pharmacist that can compound some things up for you. And so with this patient, we were able to test to a broad array of uh, some of the steroids we have and his, and also some of the ophthalmic drops um, from the, from the uh, ophthalmologist and um, we came up with, he's allergic to many, many steroids, but there, there was, there's, there was one decadron you know, Mm -hmm. that did not react. Um, uh, And, and so that, that give, gives us a window to maybe a solution. The problem is there's, there's no, like, he was also allergic to aminoglycosides and, and so there's Tobradax, there's, there's lots of combo ophthalmics with aminoglycosides, but there really aren't ophthalmics with just pure decadron. But luckily, our hope is there's co- compounding pharmacies. So this is really where it. I think coordination is the key here. You need good collaboration between the contact dermatologist, the ophthalmologist, oftentimes a compounding pharmacy, um, and be willing to patch test really broadly. Um, uh, so, it, and it's interesting because we, we think of patch testing as, hey, let's find the culprit, but sometimes we do patch testing to find the culprit, but also to find what's not the culprit. Um, and I think the, those ophthalmology cases really um, tend to, tend to uh, uh, shape it through that lens as opposed to... Uh, finding the bad actors, it's also about finding the good actors. Benzalkonium chloride is a common ophthalmic preservative that mm-hmm. it's in a lot of a lot of the agents and it causes a lot of contact dermatitis. So preservative free, ophthalmic compounding pharmacies become really important in the patient's care. Right. Yeah, that's what actually we had to go through a compounding pharmacy to see if they could make up what we needed so that he wouldn't have this. But definitely takes a lot of coordination and collaboration. Do you have a threshold for patch testing or does everyone like kind of walk in and they get patch tested immediately? Yeah, um, no, actually a large part of of, of my day and, and there are other, other patch testing dermatologists on the team at Penn, um, but we actually have a really careful triaging mechanism at Penn. And we, as as the patch testing dermatologists, we play a strong role in triaging the patients um, because, um, you know, while patch testing is underutilized, it's also, it, it also takes patient time. It takes resources. Um, a lot of the patients come from far away, even the ones that live close, parking, you know, in downtown Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania is not always easy. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I really try to triage the patients in, in several different ways. One, um, if it looks like the, the condition being referred doesn't fit so well with allergic contact dermatitis, um, then I might, I might recommend further, especially if it's coming from non-dermatologists, I recommend before um, using our resources that the patient have further dermatology evaluation. The other 
thing too that I'll do is I'll we'll look carefully because if the patient has really widespread dermatitis, it can make patch testing really challenging. So in those instances, and this kind of uh, involves walking that funny line because we're triaging patients that we never saw before, but there's also sort of a certain amount of like, you know, just do what's right for the patient. So sometimes in those situations, um, I'll work with the referring either dermatologist or allergist, or it could be, you know, other, other specialties as well, um, to try to guide them a little bit on how they might get the patient clear enough um, before they get referred into our clinic because it's really a disservice to patch test patients who are flaring. You're going to, you're going to have trouble reading it. You're going to have mm -hmm. false positive reactions. Um, and so, you know, one of the tactics we use to help referring physicians when patients are so severe, they can't be patch tested is we'll give, you know, we'll give them preemptive avoidance strategies. Um, you know, access to products that there's no perfect product um, in terms of being uh, non-allergenic, but there are certainly products that are that are less allergenic. And so we'll work with the referring um, physicians, clinicians, you know, and other other uh, other licensees as well to try to help the patient along so that when we see them, we can do as optimal patch testing as possible. Sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes, you, you know, we need to do other things, treat them with systemic steroids for brief periods of time. Um, uh, patients often are referred on other, you know, immuno, immunosuppressants or biologics, and that sometimes requires a conversation as well. Okay, so do you find, you know, you mentioned recommending certain products um and i think that the well the cosmetic industry as we know has it's very large and but a lot of the products contain preservatives do you think that this should be more regulated and also another question i had was you see these organic products being marketed heavily and they say oh it won't cause allergies and I personally recently had an experience where I went to get my makeup done, which I never do. And I told the woman I have sensitive skin. And she said, oh, this is a very organic product. It's clean. It doesn't have any like harsh chemicals in it. Sure enough, I got a reaction to it. So I feel like there's some like misleading marketing going on with the organic products. And I just wanted to see what your opinion was on this topic. Well, you really ask two very good and separate questions. One is, you know, do I think the industry should be more regulated? And 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 actually, um, I guess my not not so regulated because I think there are mechanisms in place now. There's a quasi uh, ingredient review um, board because the CIR, the Cosmetic Ingredient Review that advises the FDA, uh, and and it's it serves as a guide for industry as well to use, um, you know, safe levels or flag products that are that are unsafe. I mean, that's a that's a group that includes dermatologists, allergists, toxicologists, um, and the like. And um, as you may know, the uh, 
uh, United States Congress uh, passed uh, um, the MOCA Act, and and so there is um, going to be some increased accountability in the cosmetic industry. I think it remains to be seen, you know, how that translates into patient safety, but that's going to involve um, uh, more accountability for adverse event reporting uh, for companies of a certain size, registration of ingredients, um, tightening up on good manufacturing practices. Um, uh, so, so going, going in that direction. And I think it's, it's probably, you know, a reasonable direction. It, it, I think we never really know the consequences of a law until we, we see it go into play. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I think that remains to be seen then. So that's really one question. The second question is, do I think that the sort of like the clean beauty industry or all natural products, um, could potentially, if I'm hearing you correctly, be misleading for patients? Um, and the answer is yes, I do think that that can be potentially misleading for patients. Um, you know, there really isn't a standard, there's not even a standard for, you know, what constitutes, um, you know, hypoallergenic products or products safe for children. I mean, there's some maybe very unstructured industry guidance on that. Um, and, you know, some companies do extra testing, pre-market testing on some of those products. Um, but, um, you know, I think the the clean beauty or all natural course, I think that's marketing hype um, to play mm -hmm. on people's fear of, you know, the harm of perhaps a, a, a synthetic product. And, you know, I, I always go with my, you know, maybe my cliche standard phrase of lots of natural things aren't that good for our skin, like poison ivies, natural <laughs> and radiation's natural. And I think tobacco's grown, you know, naturally. <laughs> that's not so good. So usually I think it's really important to, you know, sort of again, use some framing for patients and, you know, you're not going to uh, convert, get converts on every patient, but if you, if you can at least make them stop and think, um, I mean, you know, it's really all about the patient. We don't want the patient doing things that will harm their skin. And, you know, it's a free market economy, but it sort of breaks my heart to see patients spending lots of money on chasing down, you know, products for, um, you know, false hope that it's going to be somehow better or make them look younger, or be healthier for them, reduce their risk for cancer, things like that, when there's not a lot of truth to that. Right. And do you have any resources that you recommend to your patients for who are dealing with contact dermatitis? Well, we give them lots of resources. Um, we give them, you know, the, I think that there's there's some links to 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 uh, low allergen products, but mo most importantly, we give them resources based on the things that they react to on patch testing and try to put it in context for them as well. Um, I mean, disclose conflict. Uh, I've been, you know, president and on the board and all sorts of things with the American Contact Dermatitis Society and I'm the AMA delegate. That's a really fun job. Uh, 
actually that I have with them, but I use a lot of the resources from the American Contact Dermatitis Society. And I think any, um, you know, buddy who's serious about patch testing should be joining the American Contact Dermatitis Society in, in addition to maintaining their AAD membership because the resources are just amazing, educational for patients. There's the CAMP database, which is basically, if you think about it, um, it's precision medicine. I mean, we're talking nowadays about all sorts of genomic testing and biomarker testing, but I kind of like to remind people patch testing was the first precision medicine. We know exactly what's wrong and we can tell patients to avoid it. And now we can tell them, hey, these are products that, that don't have in it what you're allergic to um, with some quality control in place. Well, Dr. Broad, thank you so much for your time. This is a very relevant topic. And I think a topic that, you know, an area that is probably often misdiagnosed as eczema or another condition. So thank you for sharing your expertise with us today. Yeah, no, happy. Thanks for inviting me. And I would say that, you know, all dermatologists have, you know, certain interests and not everybody has the bandwidth to do patch testing. I encourage people to, to learn about it and do it. But if you don't do it, make sure um, that you have uh, somebody in your community that you can refer to um, when you have patients who, who have um, potential allergic contact dermatitis, regional dermatitis, or unresponsive dermatitis, or like we talked about certain situations, like, you know, before a medical or ophthalmic procedure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Derm Club podcast. If you found the discussion today to be valuable, please subscribe and share. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode as we continue to delve into dermatology and skincare with the world experts.